Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. church and once again I just want to welcome everyone this morning thank you for joining us those who have joined on live stream uh, I just want to once again extend my greetings to you for a blessed a joyous uh, 2021 now as we stepped into 2021 every one of us have started crafting resolutions proclamations pleasures and promises and you can name it whatever way that you want to enact change in our lives in the new year. I'm sure every one of us has done it. And the sky is the limit when it comes to resolutions. The list can be so long. You can say that I want to exercise more. I want to lose weight. I want no sugar, no ice cream, no jam, and no sweets. And I want to save more money. I want to quit smoking. And, and I want quality time with my family. And I want to spend more time in the daily devotion. But truth be told, church... Reflecting on our past experience, we know for sure that these wishes have always been short-lived. Many of us fail to sustain our convictions long enough, isn't it? If we are to reflect on 2020, there are, there are ma many regrets that we might have. There, there are many could-haves and would-haves and should-have statements that we can make each year. We could have had a better job, a better house, a better parent, a better child, a, a better friend, a better relationship. But how do I bring about this change in my life, in the life of my family? How do I change things that I don't like within my household? That's a question today. Church, let me ask you, what do you want to be changed in your life in 2021? So let me ask the next question, then who is the change agent? The answer is pretty simple. For any change to take effect, first and foremost, I must change. I must change. It starts with you first in the family. For every one of us, the situation or circumstances could be different. The former president, George, w. George Bush, the senior, was asked this question, what is your greatest accomplishment in life? He could have mentioned a number of things like, you know, his success during World War II as a Navy pilot, his eight years as a vice president under Ronald Reagan, his own successful presidency, his time as the head of CIA or the, as an ambassador in China, uh, or he could have bragged about his success during Operation Desert Storm. But when answering this question, this is what he said. My greatest accomplishment is that my children still come to see me. My children still come to see me. Isn't that true? That's the legacy that he left behind. Now recently, I'm sure most of you would have seen on, online, uh, Barack Obama said this at a graduation ceremony. He said, I'm positive that if I'm lucky enough to live to a ripe old age, and while I'm on my deathbed, and I'm thinking back on my life, I will not be remembering 
some speech I gave, or some legislation I passed, or some law that I signed. But I'll be remembering holding hands with one of my daughters and walking them to a park. That will be the thing most precious to me. We are looking at two distinguished world leaders. Then we see a great king in the Bible, and, and King David, this is what he says about his life. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. What would you say, church? What matters most for you in 2021? What is the legacy you would like to leave behind? How do you wish to influence your family? What changes would you like to see within your household? How can you be the catalyst for this change to happen? Now let's personalize this. You can be a parent, a child, a widow, or a widower. You can be a spinister, you can be a grandpa or a grandpa, you can be a lonely person, you may be in, even in a shut-in. But I want to tell you this. No matter who you are, you have a gigantic responsibility. Whether you know it or not, you influence others around you. Now, parents influence the children for sure. I remember when, I was, when my children were growing up, I always tell my son, I said, you know, when I say no, and he comes and asks again, I say, which part of no you don't understand? And when my daughter was growing up at the age of eight, and he was uh, three, and my son was eight, and one day I heard him say no to the sister, and then he said, which part of no you don't understand? Where did he pick it from? We have an influence on our children. You want your family to change? We all want our lives to change for the better, but none of us want to change first. It was the American author, the speaker, the great author on leadership, John Maxwell said this, most people want to change the world to improve their lives, but the world they need to change first is the one inside themselves. Now, successful living always begins within one's relationship with God. I want to tell you that no one will have any godly influence on another within your household unless you know the Lord, unless you are walking in a right relationship with God. You will never have any influence in your family or your loved ones, no matter who you are in your household. Church, pay attention to what I am saying. Unless you are living a blameless life, I'm not saying sinless life. I'm saying blameless life. You will not be able to influence or lead the other person. You will never be able to lead farther than you have been. This is called the law of the lid by John Maxwell again, the great teacher in leadership. So you might say, Pastor, my life is messed up. I have issues with my spouse, with my children, with my parents, with my friends, and with my colleagues. Do I have any hope that things will change? Church, I want to tell you, the answer is yes, they will. That is what we, learn, we are going to learn today. But it starts with you. So before you expect the person around you to change, you be the change in, the, in your household first. You are sure to see the hand of God working in mysterious ways in your personal life, in your family life, in your professional life, in your spiritual life, in your emotional life. Of course, we are entering a land of time. 
that is unknown to us. 2021 is totally unknown to us. When he came into 2020, we didn't have a clue about this COVID-19. But I want to give you this assurance. Our omniscient God, he is fully aware of all that is lying ahead of us. Our omnipotent God, he is able to cause the change that we want to see in our lives. Our omnipresent God is with us all the days of our lives. Our sovereign God is our protector and our provider and would grant our desires of our hearts according to his perfect will. So let us enter into 2021 with this confidence in the Lord that we serve. So it begs the question today, how do I lead my own family? So may the resolution be that of Apostle Paul. May you exhort your family with these words. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So this morning, church, I want to examine a passage of Scripture where the Lord himself has given us the recipe to have a healthy home. How do we cause the change within our homes? What I want to do today is to talk about me, I, me, and myself. How do I cause that change? And next Sunday, we are going to look at how do we as a family cause that change? And then the next time, we'll be looking at how do we as a church going to make that change? The principle applies to every one of us, no matter what family constitution we come from. So as we reflect on this passage, let, let each one of us ask, what should I do in order to be the catalyst for this change in my own home? And again, let me reiterate, it all begins with me. So turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy, that's the fifth book in the Bible, to chapter 6, and I'm going to read from verses 1 to 3. Thank you. Verse 1. Now this is the commandment that these are the statutes and judgment which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing to possess. That you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Andrew. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Church, let us understand the background and the context here. The narrative in Deuteronomy is that the Moses is addressing the Israelites on the plains of Moab who are about to enter the promised land of Israel per the sovereign will of God. That's important for us to understand. It is the plan of God that they should enter into this promised land. So this is a speech made by Moses that incorporate a restatement. 
You may ask, what restatement is that? The substance of the covenantal obligations, that's the commandment and the statutes and judgment that are to govern the life of the people of Israel. In the text we are dealing with, the emphasis is on the future life in the land and not the present life. Not only that, Moses also speaks of the promises and blessings that accrue to the way of life. And also, later on, as we read through the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses also speaks of the curses that are the consequences of abandoning this way of life. So there is no middle ground, church. We cannot have a lukewarm warm relationship with the Lord. So as we too are about to enter into an unknown land of time in 2021, yet knowing that it is His sovereign will that we should come into this year, we could learn what commandments and statutes and judgments that would govern our lives as His chosen people and what promises and blessings that accrue to this way of life and what curses that are the consequence of abandoning this way of life. So let us read verse number one. Andrew? This doesn't seem to work. Sorry about that. So now, verse number one, now this is the commandment, these are the statutes and judgment which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which, are, which you are crossing over to possess. So what do we take from this church? Who is saying this to whom? Moses to the children of Israel. He is conveying the commandment, the statutes and the judgments and Moses says, these are from the Lord. The Lord has commanded you, commanded Moses to teach this to the children of God so that the children of God would observe them when they go into their promised land. Also, the assurance is given that they, the children of God, would possess the land and when they cross over, they are going to get the land. The Lord is not suggesting here that they keep these commandments and statutes and judgments. Church, when you look at this, it is a command from the Lord. In essence, God is saying, comply my children. Just do it. I'm not asking you, God is saying, but I'm telling you. So in verse 1, as you look at it, it says to observe. That you may observe them. is literally to do a very common Hebrew verb which makes the idea that people need to put these commands into practice. You have to act on them. You must do them. It is very plain and simple. Now let us read verse number two. The next slide, please. What they should do. Now Moses is talking about that. That you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you, your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. We are told in verse number 2 that we should fear the Lord. That is, we are to walk with an awareness of His glory, His holiness, and of His majesty. My primary responsibility to walk in the fear of the Lord. And as I read it, the doing of the commandments will be the evidence of fearing Yahweh. That's what you're seeing here. 
This would be consistent with other uses of fearing God in Hebrew scriptures. Now, this verb really is fear. I know that to some of us, we might find it very bothersome. Maybe because it seems so negative, because if we, if we were afraid of our parents, listen carefully, and if our, if our parents terrorized us, that would be bad parenting and not good parenting. And projecting that back onto God feels wrong, isn't it? Certainly our text treats this fear of God as a positive. Fearing God is good for us. In the first century, the Gentiles who were associated themselves with the synagogues and tried to keep the commandments were known as God-fearers. In the Bible, the word fear is translated and can have mean several things. It can refer to the terror one feels in frightening situations. We see this in Deuteronomy. It can mean respect in the way a servant fears his master and serves him faithfully. We find that in the book of Joshua. Fear can also denote the reverence and awe a person feels in the presence of God's greatness. We see that in the book of Isaiah when he had the revelation. The fear of the Lord is a combination of all these. Now, fear of the Lord can be defined this way. The continual awareness that our loving Heavenly Father is watching and evaluating everything we say and we do. And we know that the Lord Himself has said that every idle word that we speak, we need to give account for. David says, you know my sitting down and my rising up. Jeremiah says, you, O Lord, know me, you have seen me, you have tested my heart toward me. In the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus says, I know your works. Simply what we gather from that is there's a continual awareness of our Heavenly Father. He is aware of everything that we are doing. Nothing escapes God's attention. The question is, church, how do you develop the fear of the Lord? How do you develop that? In order for us to develop that, we must first recognize who God is. So I want to begin by asking a question, what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear God? The broad command to fear God involves understanding several things about a believer's relationship with God. The first thing that you need to know, you can note down, is recognize that God is loving and just. Look at this passage of scripture. I need the next slide, please. We find in Proverbs 2, 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So first of all, we must recognize that God is loving, merciful, and forgiving, but also is holy, just, and righteous. Understanding God, who God is as a whole person, it means accepting the fact that his justice and holiness cause him to judge sin. How do you see him? Both as loving and just, that will tell you whether you really fear the Lord or not. Secondly, fear of the Lord can produce an awe in our lives. Fearing the Lord means to be in awe of his holiness, to give him complete reverence to honor Him as the God of great glory, majesty, 
purity and power. Let me give an example. When God revealed himself to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, the scripture as you read through the book of Exodus 19, it says, thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. They all trembled in fear because of his great power. Do you know what they did because of the fear? They begged Moses, look at the next slide please, they even begged Moses to deliver God's message to them and not to allow God to speak to them because of the fear they were in awe. Look at this. Now all the people witnessed the thundering, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us. We will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. Also, when we look at the psalmist in Psalm, the next slide please, it says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. The psalmist clearly says that when you fear the Lord, you stand in awe of him. So fearing the God means to us, number one is recognizing that God is loving and just. Secondly, to recognize that the fear of God can produce an awe in us. How do you feel about God? Do you have that awe in you? Thirdly, fear of the Lord can produce faith. True fear of the Lord causes believers to place their faith and trust in Him. For example, when the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea on the dry ground, they saw how God destroyed their Egyptian army who came after them. And in Exodus, it says, fear, they feared the Lord and put their trust in Him. So the fear of the Lord lead you to trust in Him. It produces faith. The psalmist writes, next slide please. The psalm, psalm writer encourages you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is the help and their shield. So fearing God actually produces confidence, hope and trust in Him. You might ask in what areas. Let me tell you, you will be surprised. Now, these are necessary when we are looking to God for mercy. Look at the next slide, please. For we, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. His mercy is toward those who fear Him. Next slide. Forgiveness, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness. There is spiritual salvation. Look at the next slide. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. So fear of God can produce faith. So we looked at three things. Fear of God means you recognize that God is loving and just. Fear of God means that it can produce awe, and the fear of God can produce faith. Fourthly, fear of God involves recognizing that he is angry about sin. It's an important feature that we need to know. And that God has the power to punish those who stand arrogantly against him and break his laws. Look at the next, next slide, please. Psalm 76. 
You yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. And we know in the Old Testament, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they were afraid and tried to hide from God. This is what Adam said. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because of that sin that was committed. So fear of God means recognizing God is angry about our sin. Moses experienced this aspect of fear of God when he spent 40 days and nights praying for the sinful Israel. Look at the next slide. I feared the anger and wrath of God, for he was angry enough to destroy you. Why? Because of your sinful behavior. So church, even in the New Testament author, the letter to the Hebrews, he acknowledges God's coming vengeance and judgment. Look at the next slide. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we looked at four things. The fifth one we are going to look at, the one who fears the Lord will possess a receptive heart. Look at the next slide, Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Please pay attention to this verse. So fearing God in this passage is contrasted with a hard and inattentive heart. The one who really fears God would possess a receptive heart. Not a stone heart. Not a stubborn heart. Not a hardened heart. When the word is preached, when the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon him, he would yield, not being stubborn. That's what the Hebrew writer says. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So if you are the one who fears the Lord, you will possess a receptive heart. Sixthly, the one who, possess, the one who fears the Lord will come to him with a humble and contrite spirit. Look at the next verse, Isaiah 66, verse 2. This is the one to whom I look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So again, fearing is corresponding with humility and lowliness and sensitivity of heart. The one who fears God is not only humble, but has a teachable spirit. When someone confronts you in a loving way, you don't rebel, but you would submit. You will take it well. You know, church, how, how are you when you are, when you are, when you are confronted, when you are admonished, when somebody comes and talks to you about the sinful life that you are leading, how do you take it? Do you come with a contrite heart, contrite spirit? You have the humility to accept that. That is an indication that you fear the Lord. I know that in the Proverbs it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom means, a very important passage, wisdom simply means seeing things from God's perspective. So when you have the fear of the Lord, you will have wisdom and which will allow you to see the things of life from God's perspective. So without the fear of God, we 
recreate God in our own image. We often tame God into a non-threatening nobody. We, we redefine God as a God that makes us feel comfortable. A great buddy of mine who exists simply to bless me, to give us what I want and, and will not fear him in any way. But without the fear of God, then what do we do? We make final decisions based on our faulty human understanding. That's why Solomon writes, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. When we incorporate the fear of God into every moment of our lives, church, we make decisions based upon his approval. We live with the knowledge that the creator of the universe is intimately involved in every move. For he sees, he knows, and evaluates all our choices, and we will answer to him one day. Now, every choice that we make, every decision that we make, are in accordance with what God wants for us. So what did we look at so far? We looked at, next slide, please. And, and do the whole thing, please. Just go through it, yeah. We looked at six components of the one who has fear of God. May this be a checklist for you. Number one, will you recognize God is loving and just? Is that how you see God? Number two, will be in awe of His holiness, giving God complete reverence. Is that you? Number three, you will place His or her faith and trust in Him alone for salvation. Number four, will recognize that God will punish those who stand arrogantly against him. Number five, will possess a receptive heart, yield to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Number six, will come to him with a humble and contrite spirit. You possess a teachable spirit. This, if you have, these are the characteristics of someone who fears God. So let me ask you before I go to the next verse, do you fear God? Can you truly say that, yes, pastor, this applies to me. May this be the resolution that you are making this today as you enter into 2021. Because it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And it is the wisdom which is seeing things from God's perspective is the one that is going to keep you safe in 2021. So may this be our prayer. So let's read the second part of verse number two. Can you go to the next slide, please? It says that Moses is telling to the children of Israel that you may fear the Lord to keep all his command, all his statutes and his commandments. In the ESV, it says, uh, to fear the Lord by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. So Moses says, if you are to fear the Lord, you ought to keep all his statutes and commandments. So what do we take from that? When you truly have the reverence for God, which is the fear of God, it will definitely lead to a response. There is a reaction to that. When we fear the Lord as we should, this will result in our obedience to the Word of God. That's what you're seeing here. 
The fear of the Lord and our obedience to the word of God go hand in hand, church. A great biblical example that I would suggest today is King David. Is King David. Why do I pick King David? Because in King David, you not only see he was, who was called a man after God's own heart, but you can see all the human weaknesses. How he was not only forgiven, but he was restored. We can easily relate ourselves with King David. We need to see what characteristics he had to qualify for such an exalted description of knowing as man after God's own heart. Look at this next verse. Sorry, I don't, I don't think there's a slide there. When uh, in, in the book of uh, Acts, Apostle, after, after removing Saul, he made David their king. Paul is speaking to them about King David. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. The reason David was called the man after his own heart is because of the fear of God that he had, which led him to do everything God wanted him to do. The answer to why David was considered a man after God's own heart is found right there in that passage. David did whatever God wanted him to do. So the obvious question, church, from you is that how could God still call David a man after his own heart when David committed such terrible sins, including adultery and murder? We actually learn much of David's character in the book of Psalms. He opens his life for all to examine. There is nothing that is hidden in his secret closets. Everything is obvious. David's life was a portrait of success and failure. And the biblical record highlights the fact that David was far from perfect. We can easily identify ourselves with David. What, but what made David a cut above the rest was that his heart was pointed toward God. He had the fear of God. He had a deep desire to follow God's will and do everything God wanted him to do. He was a man after God's own heart. So let's look at some characteristics of David's life to discover what that entails. The first thing that we see is David as a man after God's own heart who feared God, he had absolute faith in God. That's the first thing that we are seeing. You know the story about David coming to the battlefield where his brothers were there and, and, and there was this huge giant Goliath and, and, and everyone was scared and, and skeptical about going into this battle with Goliath. And David comes and says, I will take care of him. I'm just paraphrasing. And when Saul looked at him and said, you know, you are a small little boy. How can you do this? And this was David's response. 1 Samuel 17, 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And then Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David's faith pleased God, and God rewards David for his faithfulness. So that's the first thing that we are saying. He had absolute faith in God. How about you, church? If you really fear the Lord, you must have absolute faith in in that God. 
Number two, we see that he had he absolutely loved God's law. David is credited for writing over half of the Psalms that we see in the book. Writing at various and often troubling times, David repeatedly mentioned how much he loved God's word. Look at the next, ne next verse, Psalm 119. Maybe it's not there on the screen. That's okay. We find a beautiful example here. It says in Psalm 119, For I delight in your commands because I love them, David says. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. I love your commands. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. Will that be said of you? Will that be said of me? It is hard to see his complete adoration for God's word. You can easily see that in this passage. And notice how David meditates on God's statutes. So that's the second thing that we are seeing here. David had absolute love. Third thing is very important for us. David possessed a repented heart. After he sinned and David was truly repentant, David's fall into adultery, lying and murder is unbelievable. We cannot comprehend that. None of us can say, I mean, there may be, I don't know, but 90% of us can say we have not done all that. David not only admitted his own sin and asked for forgiveness. Church, he truly repented. I want you to read Psalm 51 at, in your own leisure time. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And in conclusion, David was a man after God's own heart because he demonstrated his faith and was committed to following the Lord. Church, in final analysis, just like any of us, David, the chosen servant of God, failed miserably, yet he bounced back. He had placed his faith in God. He loved God's law and sought to follow it exactly. And when he messed up, and you and I are going to be sure we are going to mess up in 2021. Surely we are going to do. But he was quick to admit his failure and he sought forgiveness. And not only he admitted he sought forgiveness, he repented. The key word is he repented. Because he repented. Repenting means that you are turning away 180 degrees. You are taking radical surgery in your life. And when you do that, he, David was called a man after God's own heart. David is a true role model for all of us. One who obeyed God's word. You know, we looked at the reverence when he started the passage of scripture. And when you have the awe, reverential awe of God, it leads to a response, a reaction is obeying the word of God. Now when you do those two things, church, here's the reward in verse number three. Go to the next slide, please. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it. Why? That it may be well with you in 2021. And that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God, the Lord of your fathers has promised, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now Moses tells them about the reward when you do that. God promised Israel that when they followed his word, that he would bless them and reward their lives. 
The same holds true today, church. God has promised to bless those who walk in His will and follow His word. Your family need to see that God will do what He has said He would do in your life. When you possess the fear of God, when we are obedient to the word of God, when you are quick to confess and seek forgiveness and repent, the Lord is sure to bless you because He is with you. It will be well with you. So let me ask you as I close this message, do you individually demonstrate these qualities in your life at home? Do, you this, do the others see the fear of God in you? Do they see you seek to obey His word in every matter in your life? Do they see you that you are quick to confess, quick to seek forgiveness, quick to, ask, quick to repent of your sins? Church, it starts with you. Everything begins with you. They will, the others will learn exactly what you observe in your life and mine. They need to know that God blesses His faithful children by our testimonies. If they see you enjoying the great blessings of the Lord, they will want the same things for their own lives. When the others see the mighty works in your life, seeing how, God, how you are feared, you fear God, how you obey His commands, how you bring glory to Him, they will fear and place their trust in Him. You become the catalyst for the change in your household. So may this year, 2021, be different for you. May you possess this reverential fear of the Lord. May, you response, may your response be to obey God. May you be quick to confess, seek forgiveness, and repent. Church, when you do that, you become the catalyst for the change in your own family. You might ask, Pastor, is that possible? Absolutely, yes. Because the Lord is with us. He has promised He will never leave us, nor forsake us. Can I ask the worship to come as the last slide is displayed on the screen? I just want us to go to the next, click one more time, Sam. I'm going to say a word of prayer with you and as you prepare this 2021, I just want every one of us to say that it begins with me. It begins with me. It does not begin with, with your husband or with your wife or your children or with your parents. It begins with me. When I fear the Lord, when I recognize that God is both loving and just, when I have the reverential fear of God and stand in awe of His holiness and give Him complete reverence, when I place my faith and trust in Him alone for salvation, when I know that God is going to punish, when I sin against Him, when I possess a receptive heart, when I can come to Him with a humble and a contrite spirit, then the natural outcome of that is that we will obey His commands. We will have absolute faith in God. We will love God's Word. And we will possess a repented 
heart. Church, that's my appeal to you and me. May this be our New Year resolution. God, help me to fear you and to obey your commands. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your servant Moses. Thank you through whom you have spoken these words to your children of Israel who were about to enter into a land that was promised to them. And like the children of Israel, we were promised and you have ushered us into 2021, a land that we don't know about. But one thing that you know is that you are a sovereign God and you are completely aware of everything that is going to happen. We thank you that you are the omniscient God who is aware of every activity that's going to take place in our lives. We are, we are thankful that you are the omnipotent God who is able to sustain us through. We are thankful that you are the, you are the omniscient God. And, and Father, you are omnipresent God, that you are with us every moment of our lives, oh God, that we are never alone. We thank you that you are our sovereign God who will help us navigate through the storms of life. Because it is your sovereign will that we enter into this year. And I pray in Jesus' name that as we fear God, help us to be obedient to your word and help us to come to you always with a contrite and a humble spirit. Be quick to repent so that the testimony of our lives will have great impact within our household. So help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. morning church i just want to welcome everyone this morning and those who are especially watching online um, last sunday we learned that uh, the exhortation that was given to the children of god in the plains of moab by god through moses just prior to them crossing over to possess the promised land was that they would fear the lord and would keep all statutes and his commandments why? So that their days may be prolonged and it would be well with them. And this timeless principle applies to us too. As children of God who have just crossed over from 2020 to 2021, certainly with apprehension, fear and uncertainty because of the prevailing pandemic crisis, we too could personalize this promise which gives us great hope. So it begins with the three people I told you last time. It's I, me, and myself. As individuals, what should I be doing? What decisions I'm going to make in 2021 that my days may be prolonged and that it would give, it would be well with me as it has been promised. So we looked at how to measure last Sunday. We learned that if we truly have the fear of God, 
there are few things that will be seen in us. We, we said we'll recognize that God is both loving and just. We'll be in awe of His holiness, giving God complete reverence. We'll place our faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. We'll recognize that God will punish those who stand arrogantly against Him. We will possess a receptive heart. We will come to Him with a humble and contrite spirit. So these are some of the characteristics of the one who fears God. And then we looked at the one who obeys God, obeys His commands. We will have absolute faith in God. We love God's word and we will possess a repented heart. Now, so last Sunday we looked at individually our responsibilities as we go into 2021. If we truly want to make a difference in 2021. If we need to uh, invoke that blessing from the Lord, what we should be doing individually. Today we'll look at as a family, as a family unit, what changes must take place within my household so that we'll make our home into a home that is pleased by God. Church, the family is the oldest institution known to man. It is coexistent with the human race and predates by considerable time, the other great institutions of humanity, such as human government or schools or even churches. We also know at the same time that the devil has launched an all-out attack, a campaign to destroy every family. So the question is, how do we make our home a home sweet home? Is it possible? You may ask me. You will say, Pastor, are you out of your mind? Don't you know what I go through day after day? Do you know that my dad is a drunkard and no interest in knowing me at all? Do you know that my mom is a social butterfly? She has no time to spare. Do you know that my son is a wayward out into drugs and girls and no job and no income? Do you know that my daughter is all about parties? I have no control over her behavior. Late night outs and so on. Pastor, my home is in a mess. Is there any hope for me? Now church, truth be told, in Christian homes, unhappy conditions prevail. Let me repeat that. In Christian homes, unhappy conditions prevail. Often a spirit of chaos and rebellion enters the home and there is fighting and shouting and physical attack. The atmosphere is often one of nervous tension, or at best is an armed truce ready to explode at any time. All of this church is part of satanic strategy, a deliberately planned attack to destroy what has been one of the embankments of morality, religion, and faith the atmosphere of a good godly home. So before we dive into the word, let me remind you, it begins with me. Yes, it is true, church. Before we point fingers of the problems that we are having in our homes to our spouses and to our children and to our parents, let me say this, it begins with me. The first thing first, church, you want a change in the family, you are the catalyst. 
for that change. And we spoke about that last Sunday. We said that you need to have the fear of the Lord and obey His word, His statutes and His commandments. And now with that condition, let's move on. What we could do and should do as a family to create such a home sweet home environment. So let me remind you again, church, family is God's plan. He is the architect. He said it is good. He said it is not good for a man to be alone. He formed a woman and gave her to him and said to the man, you leave to cleave and you shall become one. Now today, church, we need to reclaim it. If the Lord said it is good, it is good indeed. We messed it up. We need to reclaim it. Do it, the, do it the way the Lord wants the home to function. So in today's passage, that's what we are going to learn. Now, obviously, after exhorting and encouraging the children of God what they should be doing in the land they were going to possess, now Moses addresses the families what they should do to enjoy the promises of God. So he walks them through a series of instructions, what they should be doing in the land that they will be possessing so that it will go well with them. So this morning we are going to only examine one of those instructions. The first one, we are going to look at verse number 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I have given you the Hebrew translation on the screen and I'm not going to try to read it. I want to pay attention to the very first word today. Hear, O Israel, hear. The Hebrew word is Shema. Now Shema is the typical Jewish declaration of faith in God. Shema is the centerpiece of the daily morning and evening prayer services and is considered the most essential prayer in all of Judaism. This prayer is taken from the scripture. It is traditionally recited with the hands covering the eyes. It is an affirmation of God's singularity and his kingship. Its daily recitation is regarded traditionally observant Jews as a biblical commandment. In Hebrew... Shema does not simply mean just to hear. As if it's in ears perceiving some sound and the brain processing it. Rather, Shema really means it's listening, taking heed and responding with action to what has been heard. So this twice daily prayer calls Jews to live out their commandment, commitment to the Lord, excuse me, putting into practice their love for them. So the lesson that we learn from this is that for us to reap the benefits outlined in the promises given to the children of God, our home too should become, must be a house of prayer. A house of prayer. So it begs the question, how should we pray? How should we pray? Now, the biblical character I like to examine is none other than King David, the one who really messed up and was restored. And I really want to thank my brother Roy for this morning, talking about David this morning, how he was known as a man with a contrite heart, the one who was called the man after God's own heart. 
So for our reflection today, I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 86. And I'm going to look at a few verses, verse 1 to 7. But before I read it, read this, may I ask every one of you watching and listening to this message, please take a moment to think of the one thing that has been a thorn in your flesh. One thing. It could be your walk with God, a besetting sin that you are struggling with. It could be a family, it could be a husband, your wife, your parent, your sibling, or your child. It could be your health. You have been struggling to resolve, you desperately need God to intervene in this. You have tried with all your might to resolve and has not been successful. Now, as I read this, please personalize this prayer of David. So let's read this and please follow along as I read it. Psalm 86, verse 1 to 3. Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Verses 4 and 5. Rejoice the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Verses 6 to 7 on the screen. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, and you will answer me. Church Psalm 86 gives us a helpful lesson on prayer. This is one of the five psalms called prayers. And Psalm 86 is the earnest, heartfelt cry of a man of God. He is in a desperate situation, laying hold of the God whom he knew very well. The psalm, actually, as you read through that, is peppered with 15 requests. And we are not going to focus on all that. This divided into four sections, the entire psalm. And I really encourage every one of you to take some time today to go through Psalm 86. But I'm only going to focus on verses 1 to 7. In this section, David cries out in great need of, for God to hear and to act on his behalf. So as we examine this passage, it really gives us a framework of how we should pray as a family. That's what you're going to look at today. So how should we pray? That's the question I want to answer today as a family. So as you read through Psalm 86, David's close relationship with God permeates the entire prayer. Church, he knew God intimately and personally. So he felt free to pour out his heart as he does here. So as we read, we see there are at least four ways that we should adopt in, the, in our prayers. The foundation of this is like David, every one of us should know God intimately and personally. That is why last Sunday I took the time to talk about your walk with the Lord, the need for you to have the fear of the Lord, the need for you to obey the commandments of the Lord. That means you know the Lord. 
That means you know him not only, you just know him, you know him intimately, you know him personally. So with that preamble, precondition, let us approach this. There are four things that we can take from this. Number one, we must pray earnestly. We must pray earnestly. Let's look at verses 1 and 6. It's on the screen. Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Verse number 6. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. Church, as you read this, David's earnestness and intensity oozes out on the entire prayer. It stems from his awareness of his great need. If God doesn't answer, David knew that he was doomed. God, if you don't come through, I am doomed. I am doomed. So he cries out from his heart for God to save him from these powerful enemies. He wasn't mumbling through a formal liturgy. It's very important for us to understand this. There is no ritualistic prayer here. He wasn't going through a mindlessly down a prayer list. David was like a starving beggar. He was pleading God to give him food. Now, John Bunyan, whom you know, and, and he, in his book, he wrote about on, prayer, on praying in the Spirit. This is what he does. He paints a picture of two beggars that come to your door. One is poor, lame, and wounded, and almost starving. And the other is healthy and robust. They both, they both use the same words in asking for food. They both say they are starving. The first man speaks out of his misery and pain, whereas the second more calmly sets forth his need. Both have the same need, but the way they approach you is different. And Banyan says that you'll be more inclined to give the first man, not to the second and even so, Bunyan says, it is with God. Those who come to him out of custom and formality, going through the motions of prayer, are less likely to be heard than those who earnestly pray out of the anguish of their hearts. So we see the picture or practice of earnest prayer in the scripture as you go through this. Church, believe it or not, the first time in the scripture that we see earnest prayer is actually in the Greek rendering of Jonah chapter 3 verse 8. Understand the context here. In a moment of desperation, the people of Nineveh, realizing the imminent downfall of God's wrath on them, the scripture says, they called out mightily, to God. In that desperate situation, the people of Nineveh, the Bible says, they called out mightily to God. The word mightily in the Septuagint is the word earnestly. That's what it means. They, they didn't just call out, they called out earnestly. They called out mightily. They mightily their mightly cry was heard by God because in verse number 10 in chapter 3 of Jonah, this is what it says. God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. 
when they cried out mightily, earnestly, that's the response that they received from the Lord. In the book of Acts chapter 12, and we have been doing that in our Bible study series, James was beheaded and Peter was in the prison. And Herod had probably ordered his execution for the next day. It sounds like an impossible situation, doesn't it? Imagine being a brand new multiplying church with the entire Roman army against you. And there are 16 soldiers surrounding your leader who is completely helpless and is abandoned and is in chains. How did this church in 12, Acts 12 respond? They didn't have any armies or weapons to fight and they didn't have any political power to rescue their leader. And Acts 12, verse number 5, in Luke writes this way. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So obviously their conversation would have been like this, I paraphrase here. We have an in impossible situation, church. Our beloved leader who was mightily used by God, is in prison. Now let us all gather together. Let us pray earnestly unto God, specifically for His deliverance. And church family, we said the same thing a few months ago. And the Lord came through for us in a mighty way. Why? Because we prayed mightily, earnestly, and God came through for us. So we see in this, the early church, they prayed earnestly. The word earnestly here is a compound word in Greek. It has the meaning of the English word of tension. And you see that being repeated in 1 Peter 1 is about deeply or fervently, another way of describing it. It is used again by Luke where Jesus prays in anguish and more earnestly in the Garden of Gethsemane. So when I use the word earnestly, that's what I'm talking about earnestly praying. But church, we do pray. Every one of you pray. Maybe daily, we may be praying morning and night, and I must tell you, I pray morning and night. But do we often pray like the early church prayed? We are all guilty of that, aren't we? We pray but not fervently. We pray but not specifically. We pray but not in one accord. We pray not as a group. I want to leave this as a challenge to everyone who is watching today. How difficult can it be, church, for every one of us watching this program to set aside just a couple of hours, once a week only, to be together on Zoom from the comfort of your own homes to join the corporate time of prayer. How difficult can it be for us? For you who are watching from home, how difficult. Don't do it for me. Do it for you. Do it for you. If all should come in one accord, bombarding heaven with our earnest prayers, church, we will see the results that of that early church seen in Acts number 12. 
We'll see the results of that early church in Acts number 4. This is what happens when the Lord released Peter and John. Again, we studied this in our Bible study. The scripture says, when they prayed, now here is Peter and John coming to the people, and when they prayed, the place they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Church, we will become bold witnesses for Him when we pray together earnestly. We usually resort to prayer when we are shaken, isn't it? But we see in the book of Acts, they prayed to be shaken so that they can be bold witnesses. I'm appealing to you, let us be shaken with our prayers. Those of us who have children may remember a time when your little one's temperature starts going up. From 101, 101 to 102 to 103 to 104. You may remember how our prayers changed as the temperature went up. How they became more intense. Have you ever sat with a little, ba little baby on your arms and, and who is burning up and said, Oh Lord, we would really like if it's in your will, according to your sovereign plan, to bless this child according to your purposes. Church, would that be your prayer? No, you would cry out, oh God, save my child. That is an earnest prayer. That is what, is what earnest prayer means. We need to come to God like we mean it. We need to know we, who we are really talking to. And then earnestly, with our souls stretched out before God and to say, God, hear my prayer. Earnest prayers is serious and eager and intense prayer. It truly takes no special excess spirituality. You, need, you don't need to be a biblical scholar to do an earnest prayer, church. You don't need to even memorize the scriptures to do an earnest prayer. You don't need to be the super saint to do an earnest prayer. If all, after all, if the Ninevites can do it, surely... You and I can do it. We can do it. Not to boast about it, but to give glory and to encourage who you are listening. I want to relate just two incidents in my life. I know that when my, when my son went for the interview for the med school, from the time he left the hotel room until the time he returned, it was six long hours. And I must tell you this very openly and frankly. I'm sharing this because I want every one of you to know that God is an answering prayer. He answers our earnest prayers. For six long hours, my wife was on her knees continuously and constantly, mightily crying out for God's intervention. And guess what, church? He did. He did. And again, when he was waiting for the results of the outcome of his residency, I really wanted him to come and get his residency at McMaster University. The results were supposed to be out at 12 noon. I still remember I came home at lunchtime at, from 11.30. I was on my knees. I said, God, I need, I want you to answer my prayers. I want my son to do his residency at McMaster University. And I was crying out. I was mightily crying out for God's intervention. The system was down for, for my bad luck. And I, it took nearly two hours for me to know the results. But I refused to get up from my knees. I prayed earnestly and the Lord heard my prayer. 
Church, if God can hear my prayer, He will hear your prayer. Don't belittle. Why am I sharing this church? To tell you who our God is. To reaffirm you and that He hears our earnest prayers. To encourage you to seek Him earnestly in all your circumstances. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. I just want to uplift you. There is always hope in Christ. Now when David was hiding in the desert of Judah, fearing for his life, running away from his own son Absalom, here is what David says in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Earnestly I seek you. And then he clarifies that my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Let me ask you, how thirsty are you? How hungry are you when you come for prayers? God moves mountains, church. If only we can come. So the first thing is you have to pray earnestly. The second thing we look at, verse number, verse number 3 in chapter, uh, sorry, Psalm 86. Here's what David says. Be merciful to me, O God, for I cry to you all day long. So the first point I said was pray earnestly. The second point is pray continually. Continually. Again, we see that his continual prayers were driven by his intense awareness of his great need. We read that in Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the saints in Thessalonica, he says, pray without ceasing. He does not mean that we should pray nonstop, which would be totally impossible, church. This word, pray without ceasing, it has a meaning like a hacking cough or a repeated military assault. That's what it means. The idea is keep coming back to prayer over and over again all through the day. Pray without ceasing means praying repeatedly and often. We see in the book of Romans, Paul writes to the saints and he says, For God is my witness who I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you. Now we can certainly be sure that Paul did not mention to the Romans that every minute of my life I am thinking about you, I am praying about you in every, every second. I'm sure Paul prayed about many things. But he mentioned them over and over again. That's what it means. Now, continual prayer is a posture of unceasing dependence on God. When you are continually praying, you are declaring your dependency on God. We may not be kneeling and praying out loud, but we are abiding in Him, delighting in, trusting in, depending on, and acknowledging the presence in our lives at all times. Praying without ceasing means not giving up on prayer, church. Don't ever come to a point in your life where you cease to pray at all. Don't abandon the God of hope and say there is no use praying. I have heard many people saying that. Please stop it today. Don't say there is no use of praying. Jesus is very jealous for us 
to learn this lesson. And as you look at the, the, the parable that the Lord quoted in, in Luke chapter 18 about this woman who went to seek justice from this, from this godless judge. And Luke starts this way in verse eight, chapter 18, verse 1 in the book of, Gospel of Luke. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Let me repeat that. The purpose why the parable was said, he told them a parable to that effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. We are quick to give up, church. When we don't have answers to our prayers, we are quick to give up. And I don't know how many of you know this. How long should I be praying for is the complaint that I hear from most people. Pastor, I've been praying and I'm praying and praying and how long should I be praying for? I don't know how many of you know there is a how long psalm. There's a psalm of David. Look at Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? It's a how long psalm. The same thing that we ask every time, how long should I be praying for God? How long, pastor? When is God going to come through for me? You are not alone, church. See, our brother David is doing the same thing here. How long do you pray? The answer is simple, till you hear from God. Till you hear from God. There was a dear sister. I want you to pay attention. All these are true stories I'm telling you. Whose son was into all kinds of evil. He was a wayward child. And she went to counselors after counselors and nothing seemed to work. And she always calls me and says, how long should I buy? Ask me, what should I be doing? I said, keep on praying. And how long should I be praying? She became so angry with me because she was so close to me. She started shouting at me. You pastors, you don't understand what I go through. I said, no, I don't understand, but your God does. How long? Keep on praying. There are days that she has told me off. Many times. And she keeps telling me, my son will not come for prayers. I said, he won't come to you, but you go to him for prayers. I told her that when he's asleep, after a long bad day, when he's asleep, when he does not know what's happening, go to the room, go on your knees, put your hands on him and cry out to the Lord continually. And church, I want to tell you in the name of the Lord, I, when I encourage you to pray without ceasing, God in his mysterious ways, beyond human comprehension, he touched her son. Long story short, today, he's a lovable worship leader in a church. That is our God. So pray earnestly, pray continually. Thirdly, we pray thankfully. Look at this verse. Number 12, Psalm 86. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. I want you to understand, David has not heard the answers yet. David does not have the answer to his appeal. How long? There's no answer yet. But David's saying, I will thank, I give, will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. 
Now, similarly, right after telling us to pray without ceasing, Paul tells the saints in Thessalonica, in, in Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We cannot give thanks to God from the heart unless we, submissive, we are submissive to his sovereign hand. We believe that he is working even our trials together for our ultimate good. In the book of Hebrews, look at this. The Hebrew writers say, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The word acknowledge is important, church, in this. It means recognizing God's hand at work. Which in turn requires looking for the places where God is at work. A posture of gratitude keeps my thoughts focused on God and what He is doing in me and around me. It reminds me again and again that I'm not alone. Church, every one of you, if I ask you to put a pause and to reflect back, there are things that you will testify to the goodness of the Lord in your life, isn't it? What He has done to you in the past. That's why the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. Not in the midst of all the busyness, but pause, be still and know that I am God. So when we give thanks to God, what really happens? There are four things happens when you give thanks to God. Number one, our gratitude glorifies God. Our gratitude glorifies God as we exalt not the gifts, but the giver. We are glorifying God, not the gifts. We are giving, giving glory to God. Gratitude, gratitude helps us realize all we have comes because of, not because of us, but because of God. It comes from Him. That's what the Bible said, for all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Everything that you are receiving, Paul says, may cause thanksgiving to abound for what? To the glory of God. So gratitude glorifies God. Secondly, gratitude helps us see God. Gratitude opens our spiritual eyes. Gratitude helps us sense God's presence, His personal care, His perfect timing. Again, James writes, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Church, every time you stop and say thanks to God, it, this thankfulness helps you see God again and again. Thirdly, gratitude puts us squarely in God's will. And part of his will for us to, is to be thankful, not just on the sunny days, but on the hard ones as well. This is what Paul writes, give thanks in all circumstances, in the good circumstances, in the bad circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. As you are going through bad difficulties, it's hard for you to thank God for that. But you know what, church? After a period of time in your life, when you reflect back, you will thank the Lord for those bad times in your life. You all know that I met with a near-fatal accident about 40 years ago. 
And I wasn't very pleased with God when the doctor told me that I cannot run and I cannot do the things that I used to do. I even refused to pray. I asked my, my mother as to where is Jesus that you are praying for? Why didn't he come through for that? At that moment of time, it was difficult for me to see God. But today, church, I am who I am because of what God did in my life. He used these adverse circumstances in our life to draw us closer to Him and to bring us back into His will, to keep us in the center of His will. So that is why we can give thanks in all circumstances. Fourthly, gratitude brings peace to us. Paul writes that do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So when you are coming to pray, Paul says don't come and just bombard God with, 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 with the requests, but stop for a moment, reflect on what God has done, come with a thankful heart and give your request to Him, and when you do that, what do you get in return? You don't get an answered prayer. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that you will get the peace of God. Church, when you, are, when you are troubled in our lives, the only thing that we lose is our peace, isn't it? In every circumstances. And Paul says, at that time, come to the Lord and cry out to the Lord, and, but come with thanksgiving in your heart that is reflect back on what God has done to you. And when you do that, what you receive is the peace of God. And then Paul defines that peace of God, the peace of God which passeth human understanding. In other words, you are having the worst situation around you, but you are peaceful. And people are going to ask you, how can you be peaceful? Because you are experiencing the peace of God which passeth human understanding. It is not possible in the eyes of the human to see you being in peace and enjoying that inner joy. You should be crying, you should be welling, you should be shouting, you should be doing this, that, and the other. But no, I am in peace. David says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. That is what gratitude does. Let me give another example. True life stories. There was a dear saint, a sister, who went through immense hardship in her life pertaining to a marriage, her husband abandoned her, her only child abandoned her. Pertaining to her health, she was cast away, she was really, really sick. And she lived a solitude life. But she cried out to the Lord. The Lord in His supreme grace saved her from her illness, gave her new life, and she tasted God's grace and she knew his life, his love. So she was freed from this sickness. As I was ministering to her, I encouraged her to go to the Lord with a heart of gratitude. Thinking of what God has done to her in this serious illness, the one who brought you out of this serious illness will bring you out of this problem that you are facing today. I encourage her to reflect on how the Lord saved her life from the enemy and to trust Him to do the same with her child, 
just like David's prayer with Goliath, the Lord who redeemed me from the paws of the lion and the paws of the bear will redeem me from the hands of the Philistine. It's a prayer of gratitude, praying thankfully. And church, God in mysterious ways, beyond human comprehension, something that she, could, she never even dreamt about, God united the mother and the daughter together. That is our, is our God. That is our God. So, church, so far we have looked at the three things. We've got to pray earnestly. We've got to pray continually. And we've got to pray thankfully. The last point I want to take from this passage is that we need to pray in faith. Pray in faith. Look at verse number 7. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, and you will answer me. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. That is what David is saying here. David has been in this trial for some time now without any hint of God's deliverance. His enemies must be gloating over him. Aha, you trusted God and God hasn't delivered you, man. What are you talking about? Who is this God? I'm sure they have said the same thing to you as well. You talk about this God, where is he? I see you in misery. So David asked for an encouragement sign that God is going to answer him and, sh and shame his enemies who are really mocking God himself. Church, when you pray in faith, you invoke the will of God to come to pass in your life. Let me make it very clear to you so that you get this point. Faith is not a matter of closing your eyes to reality and leaping into the dark. Rather, faith rests on God's revealed character and on the many revealed instances of how he has answered in the past. This is important to you, church, because there are so many teachings that we hear. Faith does not presume to command God. You cannot manipulate God, as modern and irreverent preachers claim to do. Even Jesus prayed this prayer. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Yet not my will, but yours be done. But faith rests on God's power and abundant love. Faith knows that if something is for our good and God's glory, He will do it. The prayer of faith is offered in faith. And part of faith is trusting that God knows what's best for us. Those who pray should be, should be unwavering in their confidence that God will always do what is right. Having prayed the prayer of prayer, faith, we can cheerfully commit our lives into the hands of God. Church, praying in faith to express your desire to God is very important. God, this is what I like. This is what I want. To ask Him to permit what is right in His sight to come to pass. What would bring Him the most glory? The scripture is very clear. My ways are not his ways, says the Lord. I want certain things in my life. 
God might want to give you something different in your life. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. We keep on praying and praying and praying, and the Lord will permit what is right in your sight if you pray. And that will be the best thing for you. You know why? That is my favorite verse, Psalm 25, verse 10. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of the covenant. If you keep the demands of the covenant, that means you are obeying the word of God. You are the fear of God. When you make your prayers, God will only permit what is right in his sight to come to pass in your life. And that is the best thing that can happen to you in your life. That is the best thing that will bring glory to him. This is praying in accordance with faith. If something is for our good and God's glory, he will definitely do it. Church, when our prayers are not answered, the way that we want answers to come, please do not attribute to the lack of faith. For example, if a saint is dying of, of an illness, and you are praying over the saint, and do not, if the, if the saint's illness is getting worse and the person is dying, do not tell it's because of lack of faith. Never make that statement. Will God heal? Absolutely, yes. But must he heal? We don't know. We don't know what God's will is. He will permit whatever that needs to happen, but ultimately it will bring glory to him. So your prayer must be, God, I'm praying in faith. This is what I need, but I want whatever that comes to pass must bring glory to you. That should be your prayer. You know, we learn a lot from Apostle Paul's writing, isn't it? And his life lessons. He was a man who said at the end of his life journey, this is what he said. Please listen carefully. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept what? The faith. A man of faith. The very same Paul. The very same Paul. Yet this very Paul plea for the thorn in the flesh to be removed, isn't it? Not once, but three times. His prayer was not answered. Was it not answered? Yes, it was answered. But not the way that Paul wanted. Was it because of lack of faith? No, it's not. Church, this is what the Bible says. But the Lord said, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ is Therefore, I'll pray all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Let me close with the prayer of faith from our own church. There was a dear child of God. She was late in her 20s. I baptized her, committed her life to the Lord. On the day of her baptism, from the pool, she testified to the church. And she was in her late 20s. She said, all my friends have partners. And they were asking me about my, my life. I will not take matters on my own hand, into my own hands, she said. Instead, I'm going to pray continuously, trusting in him alone. I'm going to pray in faith. Absolute faith in her Lord. And church, making the long story short, and most of you know who she is. The Lord brought a handsome young man to this beautiful damsel. And they are now married and are blessed with a beautiful child, a girl, baby girl. 
in his time, he will make it beautiful. That is our God. So as we begin our journey in 2021, entering into a land of time with apprehension, fear, and anxiety, may we go in confidence of the promise of God that he, that he would grant us life, long life to enjoy, and it would go well with us. So as we, as we have been exhorted already, firstly, it, let it begin with me as an individual. You, every one of you. Let me possess the fear of God and let me obey the commandments and statutes. And if that condition is met, let's go to the second one. Let it begin with us as a family. May we make our house a house of prayer. And let us pray let us pray earnestly as if you are thirsty for water in a parched and dry land. Let us pray continuously, not giving up after praying for a few days, not seeing the results. Let us pray thankfully, reflecting on what the Lord has done in your own life. Because gratitude glorifies God. Because gratitude helps us see God. Because gratitude puts us squarely in God's will. Because gratitude brings us peace. And finally, let us pray in faith. Being confident that our Lord would answer our prayers. When the prayers are in accordance with His will, which is to bring glory to God. God bless you, church. God be with you. I like to hear your testimonies. Worship team, please come. That you'll be able to call me and say, Pastor, the change has already happened in my family. It started with me. Now my house is called a house of prayer. That's what I like to hear from you, church. God bless you. God be with you. I'll come back and close the service at the end of the worship.